Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. And you, you may be seated. We're not going to be turning to a uh, particular passage, as I'm going to be drawing from all four Gospels this evening. So if you'd like to Open your Bibles to Luke 23, John 19, Mark 15, and Matthew 27, and just hold your fingers there. Uh, You can flip back and forth. But I would encourage you to take uh, time tomorrow to read through all four gospel accounts of our Lord's crucifixion, death, and burial, because each of the gospel writers have their own unique contribution to the overall picture of what took place when Jesus suffered and died on the cross. But all four gospel writers also give us many of the same details. All four gospel accounts tell us that Jesus was crucified. Having already suffered through the injustice and mockery of trials, both Jewish and Roman, he had been mocked, beaten, and abused more than once, scourged, led outside the city to the place of the skull, Golgotha, and there crucified between two thieves. They also placed a sign on the cross above his head. You see, it was common practice for a sign of of some sort identifying the victim's crime to accompany him to the place of his execution and then to be attached to the criminal's cross to serve as a warning to others about what happened to those who dared commit such a crime against Rome. But Jesus was an innocent man. And so there was no crime to put on the sign. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record slightly different inscriptions, so they may have partially quoted it or perhaps paraphrased it. But the Apostle John gives us the full inscription. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, so all who passed by would be able to read it. But none of the Gospel writers give any details of Jesus' crucifixion. They they didn't have to because it was very familiar to everyone at the time the New Testament was written, because crucifixion was the most sadistically cruel, excruciatingly painful, and loathsomely degrading death that man could die. In fact, one commentator writes, the cross displayed the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty. It exhibited the most brutal form of sadistic torture and execution ever invented by malicious human minds. The brutal punishment of crucifixion was a common form of execution for slaves, dangerous criminals, and for political insurrectionists, which is what Jesus uh, was accused of. Jesus died a common death like tens of thousands of other common criminals. And so there was no need for the gospel writers to describe the actual crucifixion because people of that day knew all too well what it was to be crucified. All the gospel writers tell us is, They crucified him. They crucified him. 
Jesus was crucified at the third hour or at nine o'clock in the morning. And he was on the cross for a total of six hours. And during the first three-hour period, Jesus hung on the cross in broad daylight, stripped naked, visible to all those who would come to watch. I mean, can you imagine the humiliation Jesus endured as he hung on the cross naked? Can you imagine? I mean, imagine what it would be like for you to be marched up here on this stage, stripped naked in front of everyone, and then nailed on a cross, and everyone was staring and watching. What humiliation. And with who knows how many hundreds of people watching and staring. Jesus was suspended there in horrific indignity as the soldiers cast lots and divided his clothing. And the onlookers, the people, and the religious leaders watched and mocked and insulted and ridiculed him. Even the robbers who were crucified with him, one on each side, also reviled him in the same way. But Jesus was silent. And during that first three-hour period on the cross, Jesus only broke his silence three times. And you're familiar with this. The first time, he prayed for those who crucified him, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The second time, he spoke to one of the thieves dying next to him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And the third time he broke the silence, he instructed the apostle John to care for his mother Mary. Although he was experiencing unimaginable suffering and pain, Jesus saw to it that the physical needs of his mother were going to be taken care of. He said to her, woman, behold your son, referring, of course, to the apostle John. And then to John, he said, behold your mother. He tenderly committed the care of his mother to the apostle John. And so in the daylight of those first three hours on the cross, Jesus said three things. All of them demonstrations of mercy. Mercy toward the soldiers, mercy toward the penitent thief, and mercy toward his mother Mary. Each was a revelation of his grace and compassion. I mean, even in death, Jesus demonstrated the heart of a servant, that, that he came not to be served, but to serve. And then there's the second three hours on the cross, and that's what we want to focus on this evening. Jesus hung in the light of day from 9 a.m. until the sixth hour or 12 noon. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that at 12 noon, when the sun was at its highest point, as they were mocking and, and blaspheming Jesus, suddenly, as you're aware of, in one frightening moment without any warning, it occurred when they least expected it, it became pitch black dark. I mean, imagine at, at high noon, all of a sudden the lights went out. And it was pitch black dark. And there was darkness, we're told, over the whole land. It was not a solar eclipse because Passover occurred during a full moon. And a solar eclipse can occur only during a new moon. God did this. It was a supernatural darkness brought upon the land by God. There had been much activity around the cross during the first three hours, but with the darkness it seems that an odd hush fell upon the entire scene because the Gospels do not record another event until 3 p.m. When Jesus was born, there was light and angels proclaiming the glory of God. 
But at his death there was darkness and silence for three hours, beginning at noon, as he suffered and bled and died. Jesus' second three hours on the cross were in total darkness. And again he was silent, but, but this was prophesied. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It was pitch black dark, and Jesus was silent. Well, what did the darkness mean? Well, in Scripture, darkness can represent a number of things. Darkness represents man's sinful rebellion against God. Darkness represents man's ignorance of God and and man's condition without hope in God. But this darkness was much more than that. In the Bible, darkness also represents the power of God's presence. For example, in Exodus 20, 21, we read, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So darkness can represent the power of God's presence. But darkness also speaks of the judgment of God. The people of Israel knew that the presence of God could be manifested by light or by pitch black darkness. And when God's presence is manifested by darkness, it is always associated with judgment. In Exodus chapter 10, God brought a darkness in Egypt so thick you could feel it for three days before the first Passover lamb was slain and God killed the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. Exodus 10.21 Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. The Old Testament prophets spoke of cataclysmic events of divine judgment being times of darkness. Isaiah wrote of the darkness of judgment, as did the prophets Joel, Amos, and Zephaniah. Jesus himself spoke of it. Darkness is the ultimate form of God's presence in judgment. It symbolizes divine fury and and righteous wrath being unleashed. And that is why in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, Hell, which is everlasting subjection to divine judgment, is a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in eternal, unrelieved blackness. The darkness at the cross was the darkness of God's presence, but it was God's presence in judgment. At Jesus' crucifixion, there was pitch black darkness for three hours. As God the Father withdrew the light of His divine presence from His Son and manifested His presence in the darkness of divine wrath and judgment. And God was saying that the cross was a place of judgment. And what is it that God judges? One thing. Sin. At the cross, God poured out the full fury of His wrath and judgment for sin upon Jesus. And again, Isaiah prophesied it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then a little further down it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And the New King James reads, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He crushed him. The darkness that covered the land tells us that God's wrath was being unleashed and this sin really was being judged there. And so for three hours you could say that hell came to Calvary as God unleashed the full fury of his awful wrath for man's sin upon his own beloved son. And it all came down upon Jesus. This was the cup that Jesus anticipated in the garden, the cup of wrath. This is what made him sweat drops of blood because in those three hours, Jesus suffered the eternal hell of all the people through human history who would ever be saved. He bore all their eternal punishments together and he did it in three hours on the cross. You think of it. Those three hours of darkness were three hours of nothing but God's divine wrath being poured out upon his own son. I mean, it's just, it's simply staggering. And it's absolutely beyond human comprehension. You know, we sing that hymn, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. You say, well, so what? So what, in the sense of what does this mean? What does this mean as far as you and I are concerned? Well, it means in the pitch black darkness of those three terrible hours, atonement was made. Propitiation was made as Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died as our substitute. On the cross, the judgment we deserve fell on Jesus. And in those three hours, he was made sin for us. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin, but he became sin for us. In those three hours, he bore in his body the punishment for our sins. And as Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ bore our sins. And he died, the just for the unjust. He was made a curse for us. He gave his life as a ransom for many, and he did it at infinite cost to himself. And why? Why? Because he loved us. And it isn't because we were deserving of being loved, or lovely, or lovable. 
He did the single greatest act of love and obedience in the history of the universe, fully knowing what it was going to cost him, because God let him see in the Garden of Gethsemane exactly what it was going to cost him, and he did it because he loved us, and the Father loved us. John said in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you want to know how much God loved sinners, look at the cross. Look at the cross where the Father loved us and gave His Son, and the Son of God loved us and gave Himself for us. I mean, was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. We cannot begin to imagine the, the crushing agony that Jesus' holy soul experienced as God poured out His wrath and fury upon Him as He bore the full weight and punishment for our sin. Jesus' soul was silently writhing in an agony that is beyond our comprehension. And then at the ninth hour or at three o'clock in the afternoon, as it was coming to an end, Jesus could no longer contain the agony. And he broke his silence. Matthew and Mark tell us at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the only time in the New Testament Jesus ever referred to God in any other way than Father. But here, quoting Psalm 22, Jesus literally screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And please understand, this was not the cry of physical pain and suffering. This was not the the pain of nails and the crown of thorns. This was not the the pain of of a a scourged back rubbing against a, a rough wooden beam. I mean, the physical suffering, as unimaginably horrible as it was, was not the real agony. This scream was was agony of soul. This scream was the agony of his soul. I mean, this was the cry of forsakenness, the agony of knowing that as he bore God's wrath for the sins of the world, he was separated from his Father. But what does that even mean? He was separated from his Father? I mean, what does that mean? I mean, when we say these words, we hardly have the vaguest idea of what we're even talking about. Because these things are utterly beyond our comprehension. What was the abandonment of the Son of God by the Father? Martin Luther is said to have meditated on that text for hours, only finally to get up and say, God forsaken of God? Who can understand it? Who can understand it? And you know, we've become so familiar with these things that we think we know. But we don't know. Certainly, we know, we know the meaning of the words. We, we know, understand what's being said. But we do not understand the reality behind them. 
I mean, how can the finite grasp the infinite? I mean, how can finite man grasp the the holy nature and, and works of Almighty God? How can finite man, even a saved finite man, even uh, come close to having any kind of idea what this is all about? And the fact that the Bible does not attempt to explain to us what they meant for Jesus tells us that we couldn't understand it even if it were explained. All we can say, and we certainly don't understand it, is that in some way, and by some means in the secret of divine sovereignty and omnipotence, Jesus, the the God-man, was separated from God the Father for a brief time on the cross. But please understand that the separation does not mean Jesus ceased to be God or, or that he was separated from his divine being in any way or that he ceased to be a member of the Trinity. On the cross, Jesus was not separated from the Father by nature. He was separated from his Father in terms of his presence in intimate fellowship and communion. You see, when Jesus became sin for us and experienced his Father's wrath against sin, the Father turned away from him. And knowing himself to be innocent, Jesus asked, why? My God, my God, why? But God doesn't answer him. The heavens are silent. It isn't that God was not present, because God was there. But God was there in judgment. It isn't because God stopped loving him, because there has never been a time when God the Father stopped loving his Son. In fact, I think we would have to say the Son was never more loved by the Father than when he was being forsaken by the Father. John ten seventeen. for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I mean, we can only imagine, but we can imagine the father looking at his humiliated son up on the cross and and saying, that is my son. That is my son that sinful, wicked men have brutalized and, and humiliated. And he's doing all of this in loving obedience to me. And Jesus was never more loved by God than when he was experiencing the curse of God because he was there to fulfill the will of the Father and the covenant of redemption to save a people to the eternal praise of the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, because God is holy and he's totally repulsed by sin. The prophet Habakkuk tells us that God is of purer eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He was the real substitute for sinners, and God's holy nature demanded separation. And so he turned his face from his son. And for the first time in eternity, there was a horrible change in, in their relationship. It went, it went from one of perfect communion, love, blessing, joy, and delight in each other to wrath and abandonment. 
And when the bitter cup that he never deserved to drink was pressed to his lips, the well-pleased smile of his father was hidden from him. And Jesus, who had never known a millisecond of separation from the Father and the Holy Spirit, found himself alone. The Holy Son of God, whose fellowship with the Father had always been perfect and unbroken, was forsaken, abandoned. And Jesus experienced the ultimate loneliness. And that was the real agony of the cross. The incomprehensibly agonizing loss of the comforting presence, compassion, and fellowship of God which Jesus longed for was not there. But his God and Father would not have abandoned him if it had not been necessary. But it was necessary. It was necessary in order that Jesus might fully experience the punishment due for man's sin. Because you see, the punishment of sin involves eternal separation from God, doesn't it? And so Jesus endured the wrath of God against sin as well as being forsaken by him, separated from him. He took the forsakenness and separation our sins deserve that we might enter into the blessing of His union with the Father. You know what this means? And this means no believer will ever be forsaken by God no matter his circumstances. I mean, no matter the suffering he may have to endure as a follower of Jesus Christ, no believer will ever be forsaken or cast away by God because Jesus was thoroughly and completely forsaken by God in the place of his people. But the sense of bewilderment Jesus must have experienced when for the first time in all eternity he felt what it was to be separated from his father is is unfathomable to us. His agony beyond our comprehension. So in the darkness of God's judgment upon sin, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Matthew and Mark tell us, some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Because of the prophecy that Elijah or a prophet like him would come as the forerunner to the Messiah, Jewish tradition thought that Elijah returned often. They returned in times of crisis to protect and and rescue the righteous and that he would come to the aid of the Messiah in his time of need. And by accusing Jesus of calling for Elijah, the bystanders were, were just scornfully mocking and taunting him. Oh, he's, he's calling out for Elijah, is he? Well, if he's really the Messiah, perhaps Elijah will come and rescue him. He's calling for Elijah. And they were just gloating over the fact that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. Now you would think, having heard Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have said, hey, wait a minute, that's that's Psalm 22. What's he doing praying Psalm 22? 
But they're more in tune with the religious traditions of the day than they are with the Word of God. And so Psalm 22 just went right over their heads. And all they could think about was religious tradition. He's calling for Elijah. And then according to John, after crying out to his father, Jesus said, I thirst, I thirst. And then Matthew, Mark, and John tell us, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. John tells us it was a hyssop branch. And so someone, most likely one of the soldiers, took a sponge soaked with sour wine. It was a cheap wine that was mixed with water. It was used by the common soldier and and field laborers. I mean, it was kind of, really, you could say it was kind of like the Gatorade of that day. That's the way they used it. It's not the same wine, uh, drugged wine, that was offered Jesus at the beginning, which he refused. So the soldier put the wine-soaked sponge on a reed, gave Jesus a drink, fulfilling Actually, Psalm 69, verse 21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So not all those standing near the cross that day were uh, completely heartless and cruel. And whoever it was that gave the order for this to be done, and it's assumed that it was a centurion, uh, was showing some genuine sympathy. But this was by no means the sentiment of everyone there that day, because in opposition to what the soldier was doing, Matthew and Mark tell us, others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Mark says, whether Elijah will come to take him down. And it just demonstrates the heartlessness, just the absolute wickedness of those people. But really, what should we expect? Why should we expect anything different? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, out of the wicked comes wickedness, according to 1 Samuel 24. You know, I don't know about you, but every time I I read the account of the crucifixion, it's absolutely astounding to me that the sudden pitch-black darkness at high noon didn't alarm the crowd or raise any questions in their mind. I mean, you would think that pitch black darkness for three hours would have caused fear in their hearts and and stopped the mocking. I mean, you would think that the Jews, with their knowledge of the Old Testament, would have at least briefly considered the fact that the darkness might be associated with God's presence in divine judgment. But even such an obviously supernatural event like the darkness didn't deter them because they were blinded by spiritual darkness. And so in the physical darkness of the moment and in the spiritual darkness of their hearts, the single thought on their minds was to make Jesus' death as painful and as humiliating as possible. That is utter wickedness. And we like to think that if we were there, we would not have been among that crowd. But odds are most of us, many of us, if not most of us, would have been right there with them.
And then Mark tells us in Mark 15, 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry. So Jesus was conscious to his very last breath. And the fact that he cried out loudly demonstrated he still had considerable physical strength and the resources to stay alive longer if he desired to. His loud cry reveals that his life didn't just slowly ebb away, but rather that he voluntarily gave it up. Mark simply tells us Jesus uttered a loud cry. The Apostle John tells us what Jesus actually said. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus cried out from the cross with a loud, strong voice, it is finished, to telestai. It means it was paid in full. It was used by merchants to, to, to talk about the, their bill. It was paid in full. It was to telestai. Or by servants to their master that the job was done. It's, it's to telestai. Jesus shouted from the cross, it is finished, the work is done. It's, and this was a shout of triumph and victory. The sacrifice for sin had been made, the price was paid in full, so that no sacrifice for sin ever has to be offered again. After that, Luke tells us that Jesus, addressing God as Father, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And all the Jews standing around the cross would have understood that. It was Psalm 31.5, which is familiar to all, would have been, which would have been familiar to all of them because it was their prayer before they went to bed each night. They prayed it regularly. Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. But when Jesus said it from the cross, he changed it didn't he? First, he added something. He said, Father. Father. You see, fury and wrath were there for three hours, but now it was gone. The punishment and the suffering was over. Fellowship and communion with the Father reestablished. And so Jesus says, Father. And second, Jesus left something out. Psalm 31.5 ends with, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Well, Jesus left that out because at the cross, He was not the one who was redeemed. Rather, He was the Redeemer. Jesus said, It is finished. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Having suffered the punishment for sin, giving His life as a ransom for many, Jesus now entrusted His spirit to the loving care of his Father. And then Mark tells us, Jesus breathed his last. Luke says the same thing. Matthew tells us, Jesus yielded or gave up his spirit. John tells us that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Our Lord was in complete control of events up to the very end. Not until he indicates by his cry that it is finished does his death come. And it's spoken of as giving up his spirit, indicating he voluntarily gave up his life. And that is why none of the gospel writers say that Jesus died. 
they knew that his was no ordinary death. They knew Jesus willfully laid down his life and immediately passed on to taste death for every man. As Jesus said in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so Jesus voluntarily, willingly laid down his life because that was the only way to redeem lost sinners. And so on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, Jesus bowed his head, breathed his last, and gave up his spirit. He simply dismissed his spirit, and his physical body died. And he did so at the very time the temple priests were beginning to make the evening sacrifices, which they did from 3 to 5 p.m. And this was Passover, remember. And so while the Passover lambs were beginning to be sacrificed in the temple, Jesus, the Lamb of God, our Passover lamb, sacrificed his life for the sins of the world. Jesus finished his great work of redemption, dismissed his spirit, and the darkness was now gone. Because the demands of God's justice had been met. You say, well, how do we know the darkness was gone? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us the darkness was over the land from the sixth hour or 12 noon until the ninth hour or 3 p.m. That is, it remained until the moment of Jesus' death. And then it was gone. Justice had been satisfied. And not only was the darkness gone, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew and Mark also tell us it was torn from top to bottom. God tore, and this is the curtain that hung in front of the Holy of Holies. God tore the curtain in two, making it abundantly clear that the old covenant was abolished, the temple was nullified, the priesthood was voided, the sacrificial system obliterated because the only true and saving sacrifice had been offered once for all. Matthew also tells us there was an earthquake and tombs were actually opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and Coming out of the tombs, we're told, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so Jesus' death was accompanied by four miraculous events. The three hours of darkness, the curtain in the temple being torn in two, an earthquake, and the bodies of many saints being raised from the dead. So you see, our Lord's death could not have gone unnoticed. Everyone, everyone knew something very, very very significant it happened. And Matthew and Mark tell us of the response of the Roman centurion who was overseeing the crucifixion. And you'll remember that a centurion was an enlisted man who had risen up through the ranks to become an officer. So he was a career soldier, a good soldier, a, a boots-on-the-ground kind of soldier, battle-hardened, familiar with death, familiar with killing, familiar with what it was to survive. I mean, these were really hard, tough characters who had, who had seen and inflicted death to a, to a degree that you and I can probably not even imagine. 
So here is a man who was a brutal person, a man who has seen many, many people die, a man who lived in absolute spiritual darkness. He's overseeing the execution squad, and as the one responsible for what happened, this battle-hardened centurion had kept a very close watch. And this had been especially necessary during the darkness. And so absolutely nothing would have escaped his attention. And Mark, in his account, tells us the centurion was standing right in front of Jesus. He was standing right in front of the cross when Jesus died. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, the only person a Roman would ever say was a son of God would be Caesar. But here this man, referring to Jesus, says, truly, he was the son of God. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Well, obviously, he saw something about Jesus and his death that was unlike anything else he had ever seen or heard. And he had seen and heard a lot. But with respect to Jesus, he had, heard and, he had seen and heard everything that went on that day. If he had been part of the initial arrest, which he probably was, he had seen the mock trials, the abuse, the spitting, the punching, the, the slapping, the sneering, the mocking, the ridicule, just the, the brutality, and he saw Jesus take it. He saw Jesus take it and he saw no retaliation. He heard Pilate repeatedly declare that Jesus was innocent. He saw the scourging. Oversaw the walk to the place of execution. He saw Jesus' reaction to being nailed on the cross and to the soldiers crucifying him. He heard Jesus pray for them from the cross. Father, forgive them. He heard Jesus' other words from the cross. Jesus' words to the dying thief. His words committing his mother Mary to the care of the Apostle John. He witnessed him welcoming the one thief into the kingdom. He witnessed the darkness and the way that Jesus breathed his last. He heard his cry, it is finished. He saw him bow his head and die. He he felt the earthquake. He knew that Jesus was no ordinary man. And Luke tells us when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. So certainly this man was innocent and truly this man was the Son of God. Having observed Jesus' behavior throughout and having heard how he addressed God as his father, the centurion felt that Jesus' claim to be God's son could not be a lie. Truly, he was the son of God. As one commentator said, the tenderness of Jesus must have pierced right through his hardness and the beauty of Jesus in his death must have flooded darkness with light. You know, I don't know if this means the centurion was confessing a saving faith in Christ. I don't know. I mean, we can hope so. I mean, I hope that's what it means. 
I hope the Holy Spirit just shattered the hardness of his heart and the darkness of his soul and, and opened his spiritual eyes to see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ in a saving way. I hope that's what it means. We'll find out when we get to heaven. In contrast to the centurion, Luke tells us, and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. They're just beating on their chest. That was symbolic of uh, great grief. So apparently it wasn't quite as funny now. It wasn't so funny now after the darkness and the horrific earthquake that apparently scared them. And so they left. Doesn't say anything about them believing. But we can only hope and pray that, that perhaps some of them were among the 3,000 who were believed, or who, or who believed and were saved on the day of Pentecost. After this, John tells us when the soldiers saw that Jesus was already dead, they didn't break his legs as was the custom. But one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, both of these uh, in fulfillment of Scripture. And then all four Gospels tell us that Jesus' lifeless body was released by Pilate to Joseph of Arimathea. And then John tells us that uh, along with Joseph, Nicodemus assisting him, they together they wrapped our Lord's body in linen cloths or linen strips and 75 pounds or so of spices laid it in a new tomb belonging to Joseph in a nearby garden. And Luke tells us that some of the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And we know from Matthew and Mark that among the women were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses. And so at this point in the gospel narrative, Jesus has died and he has now been buried in a tomb and a great stone was rolled in front of it. And as believers, we should be deeply touched every time we read of Jesus' death upon the cross. It was J.C. Ryle that said, he that can read a passage like this without a deep sense of man's debt to Christ must have a very cold or a very thoughtless heart. Great must be the love of the Lord Jesus to sinners when he could voluntarily endure such suffering for their salvation. Great must be the sinfulness of sin when such an amount of vicarious suffering was needed in order to provide redemption. You know, the cross reveals a number of things to us. Let me mention just three. The cross reveals the magnitude of our sin. The cross reveals the sinfulness of our sins. Our sin is such that only the death of the Son of God could atone for it. The cross reveals God's great and holy hatred of sin. God hates sin. And he will see to it that all sin is punished. Our sin is either punished in Christ 
For if we die apart from Christ, we will be punished for our sin and we will pay for it throughout eternity. The cross reveals God's great and holy hatred of sin. And so how is it that we are so flippant about sin? How can we be flippant about something that costs the the life of the very Son of God to pay for it? And sin is sin. I'm not talking about adultery, rape, robbery, and murder. What about pride, selfishness, slander, gossip, lying? those respectable sins. So the cross reveals the magnitude of our sin. It reveals God's great holy hatred of sin. But you know what else? The cross also reveals to us the greatness of God's love and his mercy and his grace. But God shows his love for us, Paul said in Romans 5.8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the cross is the reason that we as believers know that God loves us. And not only that, he is for us. In Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul put it this way, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The word spare means to save from loss or discomfort. And in some contexts, it means to refrain from doing something. So Paul tells us that God did not spare his only son. And he was not spared the agonies of leaving heaven or of becoming a man. He was not spared the, the trials and temptations as living as a man in a sinful world. He was not spared the agonies of the wilderness temptation when assaulted by the devil. He was not spared being misunderstood, despised, and rejected. He was not spared the injustice of an illegal arrest, mock trials, physical abuse. He was not spared being scourged. He was not spared the shame of nakedness and the awful humiliation of crucifixion. He was not spared the incomprehensible agony of the furious wrath of the Father for our sin. He was not spared having his lifeless body being taken down by two men and being taken as dead weight into a garden tomb. God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So if you want to know who God is, He is the God who defines himself in this way. He is the God who did not spare his own son for you and for me, but he gave him up for us all. God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. One old commentator asked the question, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Then he said, Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father." For love. And what did our salvation mean to the heart of the Father? Not sparing His only Son. That's what it meant. That's who God is. And that's what He does for us. And this is the kind of God that He will always be for us. 
He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And so Paul says in the rest of Romans 8.32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God has done this for us, if he has done the greater for us, if he didn't spare his own son for us, then we can be sure that he's going to give us all things. We can be absolutely certain that the Father will not, or the Father will stop at nothing to keep us, lead us, guide us, and to bring us to glory. That's the heart of the atonement. The Father did not spare His own Son. He gave Him up for us all because He has done that, Paul says in Romans 8, so that no opposition against us can stand, no accusation can stick, no condemnation can destroy, no separation can ever tear us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May this is the power of the truth of the gospel in us. And the question is, do we trust God as this kind of father? Do we trust God as this kind of father? I mean, do you love him? I mean, do you think of him and and speak of him as the God of all grace? the The God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I mean, think of the debt of love and service we owe to God for all he's done for us in Christ. And then ask yourself, do you love him? You know, on this side of the cross... We can look back and and be very, very thankful. Uh, And we can glory in the cross like the song we sang tonight. But for Jesus' disciples and the others who followed him, that Friday uh, was anything but good. It was a dark, dark day for them. And their world had just come crashing down around them because they had given up everything for him. They had left everything to follow him. But now their hopes and dreams were shattered because as far as they were concerned, Jesus was dead. Now what were they supposed to do? Well, they were very much afraid, and we can understand that. They were in fear for their own lives, and so they were huddled together somewhere in Jerusalem, just absolutely overcome with sorrow and grief. I mean, just try to imagine what it was like for them. I want you to think of the most tragic event in your life and then know that that's what they felt and uh, a whole lot more. Because even though Jesus had told them he would rise, they really didn't get it. They didn't understand so at this point, as far as they knew, Jesus was dead and, and they were probably next. They probably thought they were all headed to a cross and they knew the horror of crucifixion. No doubt that the question in their mind was, what do we do now? 
But Sunday was going to change all of that. Sunday was going to change everything. But at this point, his stunned, perplexed, frightened, and and broken-hearted followers, they, they didn't know that. And their lives were just shattered. But thank God the story doesn't end on Friday with the cross and the tomb. Thank God Sunday was a coming, right? We have a lot to be thankful for. And we should remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ every day because we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. And by that, I certainly don't mean so that we can get saved every day. I mean, you know what I mean. We need to be reminding ourselves of what it is God has done for us and why we need uh, to hear that every day. So every day is a good day to remember the death and burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So Sunday's coming. And I hope that you're all coming on Sunday. (laughs) So thankful that you're here tonight. And I just want to share just one one half a second, or half half a minute. You know, it, it's grievous as a pastor to see how little so many in the body of Christ think of and treat Good Friday, Easter Sunday, uh, Christmas, but especially Good Friday and Easter. I mean, the whole Passion Week, the triumphal entry. I mean, this was the week that changed the world. And for most people, it's just an excuse to go do something. And they give little or no thought to denying themselves and being in church. Because so many people are focused on the temporal, they give very little focus and time to the eternal. I'm not being legalistic about this. I'm not saying you can never miss these services. I'm just saying when it becomes a a habit, then maybe that's an indication of a heart problem. Because Christians, I mean, Christianity 101, you know, what you look for in Christians is that they're faithful, teachable, available, and dependable. That's Christianity 101. And when people aren't available or dependable, then it's an indicator of probably one of three things. One, they're just very immature Christians. They don't understand. Or number two, they're in rebellion against the Word of God, and that's a problem. Or number three, they're not saved at all and have no understanding what the Christian life is all about. So, I know for many pastors, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, Christmas, I mean, these are big days for us. Because these are the things that... uh, 
are the foundation and the heart of our faith, the heart of Christianity. And so while we uh, look forward to them and preaching about these things and celebrating them, at the same time, it, it grieves our hearts because of the state of the church and the state of the hearts of many people in the church. So all of that to say thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate it very much. I really, really do. Last year was so miserable. Because remember, we were closed, and so I was preaching to an empty room, except for the few people in the worship team were in the back, and with these lights, I couldn't even see them. (laughs) So it's a great blessing to be here with you tonight, and look forward to being here with you on Sunday, so that together we might celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Pray.